Thank you, Caleb. Good morning. Nice to see all of you this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we would love to get one in your lap. So please raise your hand. And since Dave does this to me a lot, Dave, you can give them, give them out. Um, uh, go ahead and raise your hand and Dave will get you a Bible. All right. Well, we are in part three of our three-part series on Psalm 119. Uh, if you would turn with me to Psalm 119, we're going to be beginning in verse 49. We have seen in this series that the main goal is to be a Bible-saturated person. The focus of this psalm is to motivate you as you read it to become a Bible-saturated person. And we've also seen that our main application question was, do you love the Bible as much as this author does? And I think that's going to continue throughout this section of the psalm we're going to look at this morning. We've also seen that this author sees scripture as the high life, the blessed life. And we've also seen that it's the hostile life, where it's a battle of worldviews against our enemies and a battle against our own selfish inclination and sinful desires. However, this week we will see that the trials and difficulties become more intense throughout this section. It is about seven times that the author uses the word affliction. This is why I titled this sermon, Living the Hard Life. But with this intensity of difficulty, God's promises shine more and more bright in hope. So with that, let's read Psalm 119, verses 49 through 50, and then we will look at the literary structure of this psalm. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises gives me life. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that we have somebody in the Bible that loves the Bible. And that shows us how to love and appreciate and value your precepts and your words. God, we ask that our attitudes and hearts would be shaped in this way as well. That we would love the Bible and above all glorify the author of the Bible. God, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. That you would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we've seen in our chiastic structure that we are moving now to a type of retrospection or self-reflection of past events. So the first week we looked at how the whole psalm is about living the high life and closing with a type of assurance that God's promises are true. And then the center of this chiasm was primarily about God's word being faithful to the end and for eternity. Then we saw petitions and laments last week where he was praying that God would deliver him from difficult circumstances. And this week, we are going to see that the psalmist is looking at his own life, first negatively with his afflictions and difficulties, then positively. The negative aspects climax in a revelation that this man didn't always delight in the Bible the way he should. And then the second set of verses, verses 97 through 128, are primarily positive. And this positive retrospection is focused on 
how he has loved the Bible throughout this, his life and is receiving the benefits of years and years of living the high life and being a Bible-saturated person. He now knows how valuable, valuable scripture is and sees the fruit of his past experiences with it. Just like the last two weeks, we saw that these, um, these, this acrostic poem comes in two acrostic pairs and form one thematic unit, and that informs our main point. And here it is. Bible-saturated people find comfort in God's word, find goodness in God's word, are learning about God's word, and are victorious in God's word. I'll say that again. Bible-saturated people find comfort in God's word, find goodness in God's word, are learning about God's word, and are victorious in God's word. So let's pick up our text once again in verse 49. God's word reads, Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. So as we have seen before, these pairs have several points of contact between them that show a thematic unit. So if you look at verse 52 with me, it says, when I think of your rules of old. And then in verse 59, it says, when I think on my ways. Then secondly, verse 55 says, I remember your name in the night. And then verse 62 is, at midnight, I rise to praise you. Third and lastly, verse 56 says, I have kept your precepts. And verse 63 says, those who keep your precepts. So, so these show that these two acrostics are connected thematically. So let's look now at verses 49 through 52. We see comfort in remembering God's promises. Comfort in remembering God's promises. If you look at verse 49, it says, Remember your word to your servant in which you give me hope. And then in verse 50, this is my comfort in affliction. Verse 52 says, when I think of your rules, I take comfort, O Lord. The reason for needing this comfort comes in verse 51. The insolent utterly deride me. In other words, the wicked continually ridicule this man. And I think the CSB translates this verse a little more clearly. The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but... 
I do not turn away from your instruction. So despite this ridicule that he's experiencing in his life, he finds comfort in the promises of God. And this is a theme we've seen over and over and over again, that it is important to memorize the promises of God. It is important to memorize Scripture because in our memorizing, we can apply that Scripture to our own life and find comfort in these times of difficulty. And remembering God's promises reveal to us that God is good. We often find comfort in more tangible things than God's promises. Job security, the paycheck we get every Friday or every other Friday, our social standing. I want you to reflect now on where your own comforts lay. If you were to lose this one thing, would this make you uncomfortable and not content in your life circumstances? We need to see that the promises of God provide comfort for us. Moving now to verses 53 through 56, we move from remembering God's promises to remembering God's name. Verse 55 says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord. And then he still finds God's statutes being his song in verse 54, and he considers it a blessing in verse 56 to follow God's precepts and keep God's precepts. So despite the difficult circumstances, his blessing is in following and keeping the words of the Bible. But moving now to verse 53, this seems a little bit um, extreme. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. But if that, the theme of this is true, if we, if we are thinking about the character of God, remembering God's name causes us to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And if God hates those who break his law, we should hate wickedness as well. If we reflect and know on God's character, we see that his anger is kindled against the wicked, and in the same way, we should hate wickedness as well. This is the relationship we see between verse 55 and 56. Once you remember the name of God, you want to keep the precepts of God. Remembering the name of God reveals to you what God loves and what God hates and motivates you to follow it. So ultimately, knowing God's name also reveals his promises because all of God's promises are outside his character. It is the overflow of who God is that he promises to comfort us. So yes, we should hate wickedness, but also find comfort in God's promises. Jumping now to verse 57 through 60, it's not just uh, comfort, but we see now a promise to keep God's word. In light of remembering God's promises and God's name in the midst of affliction, we see God's devotion to himself motivates our devotion to him. Look at verse 57. I promise to keep your words. Verse 59. I turn my feet to your testimonies. Verse 60. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. And the basis for this desire to follow the Bible's rules is in verse 57. The Lord is my portion. 
I can't improve on the words of James Boyce when he says of the word portion. The psalmist is saying that he wants his portion of divine blessing to be God himself. Since nothing is better and nothing will ever fully satisfy, satisfy his heart but God himself. Listen to this. To possess God is to truly have everything. Do you believe that this morning? That if you truly take possession of God, that you have everything? And that is the driving force. That's the motivating factor behind wanting to follow the Bible. If you see God as truly better than life can give and death can take, then you will follow his rules. Then you will follow his precepts. Then you will delight in his commandments. If you do not believe that having God is having everything, then you will never find yourself wanting to keep God's word. That's where it all starts. Moving now into verses 61 through 64, they close this section with a promise to now remember God's word. In verse 61, he says, I do not forget your law. In the middle of the night, he says in verse 62, I rise to praise you. He remembers God's word despite the wickedness and evil around him. However, verse 63 and 64 have delightful points we need to consider as well. I am a companion of all who fear you, he says. In other words, he puts people around him that love the Bible the way he does. So this is, I think, an implicit command to come to church, to surround yourself with people that are God-oriented and God-focused because the way we remember the Bible is often being reminded about what we already should know. Finding a friend that's going to come alongside you and point you Godward and point you in a Godward direction. Surround yourself with people that will sharpen you and disciple you and show you what God's word truly says. It is in these verses that we see a masterful and clear point made. We find comfort in God's word. Yes, we remember it. Yes, we delight in it. Yes, we must keep it. Yes, befriend believers. But the most important point here is don't find your comfort in material possessions. Find your comfort in God. Now we can move to our next point. Bible-saturated people find goodness in God's word. Bible-saturated people find goodness in God's word. Look at verse 65 with me. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. 
Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear, who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. So these two sections are joined by three points of connection. First, if you look at verse 67, God's goodness is afflicting the author. And then the same thing happens in verse 71. Similarly, in verse 75, it is in his faithfulness, rather in God's faithfulness, that he's afflicted. Secondly, we see in verse 69 that the insolent smear him with lies. And then in verse 78, he says the same thing, the insolent wrong with falsehood. Thirdly, we see a delight in God's law in verse 70, where he says, I delight in your law. And then in verse 77, he says, your law is my delight again. Looking now at verses 65 through 68, this is primarily focused on God's goodness in affliction. God's goodness in affliction. He acknowledges that God is good to him. Look at verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant. He asks God to teach him good things in verse 66. Teach me good judgment. In verse 68, he says, and this has been one of my favorite verses in this whole psalm, you are good and do good. This is a clear moment of speaking truth. Notice that the affliction comes in verse 67. I was afflicted and went astray. And I think we need to look carefully at verses 67 and 68. Look at the relationship between those two verses. He was astray. He didn't love God's law. Then God afflicted him. God afflicted him with troubles and circumstances. And then in verse 68, he says, you are good. In other words, he moves from wandering away from God to delighting in God himself and finding goodness in God. And how does God do that? Affliction. That's countercultural to the way we think. We think if God blesses us, we turn to him. Rather, when God afflicts us, we are to turn to him. He brought him out of his wandering, and that's why he sees God as good. Despite the affliction and the suffering, he sees the goodness of God for what it is because he brought him out of wandering. So if you are experiencing difficulty in your life and wandering away, this might be God's tool to bring you back in fellowship with him. Let me be clear. There is no purposeless evil in the world. Every evil thing that happens has a purpose. And Romans 8, 28 through 29 reveals that God works all things for good. And if you read verse 29, that good is to make you look more like Jesus. It's being conformed into the image of Christ. So the goodness that you see in affliction is that you are looking more and more like Jesus. That's the point of this section. God's purpose in affliction and God's goodness in affliction is to make you look more like Jesus. So in your affliction, do you pray? God, use this to make me look like Jesus? Or even turning the key more firmly, God, do not let me out of this trial until I learn what you want me to learn. Pray that way. 
so that you might see God's ultimate purpose in his own glory and our growth and sanctification and looking like Jesus. Moving now to verses 69 through 72, we are now learning God's statutes through affliction. So we saw before God's goodness in affliction, now learning God's statutes through this affliction. Looking first at verses 69 through 70, it goes back and forth between the wicked man and the author here. We have the insolence smearing with lies and having an unfeeling heart. And then we have the author's whole heart set on God's law and delighting. Do you see the contrast? The wicked one's wickedness reveals an unfeeling heart, while the righteous one's love for the Bible shows his whole heart as devoted. So what is this language of fatness here? I can't improve on Eric Zenger's comments here. Their heart is surrounded by a thick layer of fat so that God's word cannot get into it and they are therefore both dull of understanding and hard-hearted. So, this point has been my greatest conviction in terms of application. How do you respond to criticism? Is your heart under a thick layer of fat so that you are not receptive to godly criticism? Your brother and sister approaches you in the Lord lovingly, and your heart is not receptive to looking more like Jesus. When your spouse or close friend points out sin in your life, are you thankful or hateful? Does God's word soften your heart or harden your heart? And pray this might change in you because the wicked person is characterized as someone that hates God with his heart. And his heart is covered with unfeeling fat so that he might not be penetrated by God's word. And if you're thinking of somebody else right now, you're missing the point. (laughs) Now moving to verses 73 through 76, we see God's faithfulness in affliction. So we remember God's statutes and now we are seeing God's faithfulness in affliction. He acknowledges God as creator of the whole universe in 73, and that's the grounding for the whole section. God as creator has the divine authority to do all that he pleases. It would be reasonable for God to crush all of us right now, and it would be warranted, but God's goodness reveals to us that in every circumstance of our lives, he is in control. He is the sovereign one. He has providential purpose in the affliction. In verse 75, he attributes the affliction to God himself. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And listen to this. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Do we think of affliction as more of God's apathy or God's faithfulness? Affliction is an outpouring of the attribute of faithfulness. I don't think like that. And I don't think I'm weird. I think all of us tend to think that when God, when circumstances and difficulties happen in our lives, that God is not involved or doesn't care. But actually, it's the opposite. He is most involved and mostly cares because his faithfulness is being shown. And in verse 76, he says, let your steadfast love comfort me. And we've seen that that word, steadfast love, is tied to the covenant. 
And so in the new covenant in Christ today, we see that Jesus' shed blood on the cross comforts us. Jesus' resurrection on the third day comforts us. Jesus' ascension and session brings comfort to us in our affliction now. So do you find comfort more in that your trials are going to go away someday or that you will see God one day? Do you find more comfort in knowing your trials will go away or more in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and second coming? Moving now to verses 77 through 80. We see that the author is teaching God's statutes through affliction. Teaching God's statutes through affliction. So we saw all of these four subpoints primarily focus on affliction. The God is the source of all these afflictions. But the author introduces a different character and a different point. Your sanctification is not just about you. Circumstances are not just about you. Verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Others might see his affliction and rejoice in God's glory. Verse 79 says the same thing. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimony. So this man is so captivated by the Bible that he's using his difficult circumstances to turn others to Scripture. Isn't that amazing? I pray that God would make us as a church like that. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through difficulty and affliction, I am very selfish. I tend to become, turn inward and what I need and why isn't this person helping me and this person asking the right questions and talking to me. That's how I think. But this author is using his affliction as a God-given opportunity to share his glory and beauty with those around him. Do you use your afflictions in this way? Do you look around and see how you can bless others by your difficulties and trials? With that, we saw that Bible-saturated people find comfort in God's word and find goodness in God's word. And this is the negative retrospection in our chiasm that has to do with life's afflictions. He describes them seven times in this passage, and he also shows that we can find comfort and goodness in God's word even when God afflicts us. Now we're going to move to the, from the negative to the positive retrospection and see the benefits and the fruit of being a Bible-saturated person. So with that, let's move to our next point. Bible-saturated people are learning about God's Word. Turn with me to verse 97 of Psalm 119. This is Psalm 90, 119, 97 through 112. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules. For you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through the pre your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in your hand continually, for I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. So these two sections reveal at least three points of contact. If you look at verse 101, it says, I hold back my feet from every evil way. And then he expounds why in verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet. Verse 102 says, I do not turn aside from your rules. So he doesn't waver from them. In 110, he says, I don't stray from your precepts. And lastly, both sections move from learning about God's word to doing God's word by the end of each acrostic unit. So now let's relook at verse 97 through 100. These are primarily about focusing on knowing God's word. That seems pretty obvious. We see several repetitions that show a positive retrospection about the Bible and someone that wants to learn about it more. Verse 97, your law is my meditation all day long. Verse 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99, I have more understanding than my teachers. And verse 100, I understand more than the aged. All of these passages reveal that this man wants to learn more about the scriptures. He is desiring to learn more. He's not content and just knowing more than his teachers. He wants to know more and more and more. So yes, do private devotionals. Yes, do personal devotionals. But I think that Christians tend to read their Bibles like they read a newspaper. They pick one story, they pick one section, do a light skim, find one little piece that's interesting, and take that away. That's not how we should read our Bible. That's not how the author of this psalm reads his Bible. He says, it is my meditation. That word meditation has been hijacked from Christianity and read into all kinds of garbage. Biblical meditation is filling your mind with the scriptures, not emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is filling your mind with the Bible. And Don Whitney, in his book on the spiritual disciplines, describes meditation as brewing a cup of tea. He says, in this analogy, your mind is the cup of hot water, and the tea bag represents your intake of Scripture. Hearing God's Word is like one dip of the tea bag in the cup. Reading, studying, memorizing God's Word are additional plunges of the tea in the cup. Meditation is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep. Meditation on Scripture is letting the Bible brew in the brain. So is scripture meditation an active part of your life, or are you a newspaper read, Bible person? Do you sit and let your head become Bible-saturated? Now, let's look at verse 100. The word for is everything here. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. That word for means 
that the reason he understands more than the aged is because he doesn't just know it, he does it. And that jumps us down, down into verses 101 through 104. It talks about doing God's word. And this section explodes with a drive to do God's word. Verse 101 says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules. And this connects with our last theme, that you don't truly understand the Bible if you don't know how to apply it. You don't truly understand the Bible if you don't know how to apply it. That's the important thing here. Verse 104 says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Same thing. Commitment to do God's word. True understanding of the Bible will change you from the inside out so that you love the commands of Scripture, and love doing them. You see them as the high life. John Frame actually comments well on this point. Here's what he says. If I can find it in my notes here. Here we go. Imagine someone saying that he understands the meaning of a passage of Scripture, but doesn't know at all how to apply it. Could we seriously accept such a claim? When one lacks knowledge of how to apply a text... His claim to know the meaning becomes an empty, meaningless claim. Knowing the meaning, then, is knowing how to apply. The meaning of Scripture is its application. I might nuance his words slightly differently, but the bulk of his argument is true understanding of the Scriptures reaches its ultimate fulfillment and application. We can recite the five traditional theological disciplines with a great definition for each that's in 10 words or less, but can we apply it? Can we apply what we know about the Bible? That's where true understanding lies, and that's why he can say, I understand more than the aged. Moving now to verse 105 through 108. These reveal the illumination of the Bible. Verse 105 very famously says, your word is a lamp. This provides the introduction and the literary scope of the rest of this section. We have commitments to keep God's rule in verse 106, prayer for life in verse 107, and we also see in 108 a request for God to hear and accept his offerings of praise. All of this is informed by seeing the Bible as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Notice that the lamp comes first, then the light. You can't have the light without the lamp, and the lamp is God's word, and the light is knowing how to apply it. It is knowing how to apply scripture that we can look down at our feet and see every pitfall and every crack in the surface and everywhere we could trip. Torah or the Bible is the source of all light and illumination, and the Bible helps orient and puts everything in the right light. This is adopting a biblical worldview. The words of the Bible are a means to get to the biblical realities behind the Bible. Every biblical author had the same God-centered worldview. Do you want to understand and embrace that worldview? Do you want to see the biblical realities behind the text and let that inform every decision of your life? Every decision of your life needs to be calibrated by a biblical worldview. 
and it is in seeing God's word as a lamp and a light to our path that this is talking about. If you know the truth well enough, you will always be able to spot the lie. And do you want to know the Bible well enough to spot that lie? Lastly, verses 109 through 112 are about performing God's statutes forever. Performing God's statutes forever. We see this in every verse in this section. 109, but I do not forget your law. Verse 110, I do not stray from your precepts. Verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. All of these are about living God's word despite the wicked laying a snare for him. Look at verse 109 before we move on. I hold my hand in your life continual, in my life. Let me say that again. I hold my life in my hand continually. In other words, he's in grave danger to the point where his own life is at risk, but his focus is not on his life. It's the Bible. So we have seen Bible-saturated people find comfort and goodness in God's Word and are learning about God's Word. And this positive retrospection shows a delight in knowing more of God's Word and seeing the benefits of intense study. And we all know that this type of attitude and fruit does not come overnight. This is years and years of diligent Bible study, biblical meditation, reading the Bible, years of looking to the Scriptures to become a truly Bible-saturated person. And what better day to start than right now? With that, we move to our last main point. Bible-saturated people are victorious in God's Word. Let's look at verse 113 together. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Verse 121, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. We did it. We read all of Psalm 119 and these three sermons, and the people rejoiced. So we have three points of contact between these two portions. If we look at verse 113, it says, I hate the double-minded and love your law. That's how it starts. And then if you look at the end, verse 127 does the opposite. I love your commandments. Verse 128, I hate every false way. 
So it, it creates a type of inclusio. We have a metal illustration in verse 119. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. And verse 127 describes God's commandment as a metal above fine gold. Third, we see major themes of judgment and justice in these verses, especially in verses 118 and 119 and 126. And we will see that this judgment and justice of God provides victory for those that are Bible-saturated people. So looking at verses 113 through 116, we see hoping for God's justice. That's the basis for this hope in verse 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. He hates wickedness and evil, but he loves righteousness and truth. This is our source of hope as Christians. The reason we should hope in God's righteous judgments is because we love truth and hate evil. He goes even so far to address the wicked people. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of God. Specifically addressing them. Leave me alone, he says. What a powerful statement. And once again, the power to state these things is from God himself. 114 says, you are my hiding place and my shield. In other words, the promises of God are the fuel that keeps the author's vigor for truth. God's promises are the fuel that keep our vigor for the truth. Moving now to verses 117 through 120, the author transitions from hoping to trusting in God's justice. Before we saw prayers that God would uphold the author in verse 116, now we see that actualized in verse 118. You spurn all who go away astray from your statutes. He's saying it like it's actually happening right there. His rejection is like removing impure metals that rose to the surface and casting it away. His judgment is like rejection. In other words, God's character demands judgment on the wicked, and that judgment is to reject and discard into eternal suffering, hell. So if you are visiting this morning, hell is a real place, and I beg and plead with you, you don't want to go there. The only way to be freed from God's eternal judgment on our sin is by putting our trust in the one who bore God's judgment in our place, Jesus Christ. His shed blood paid the penalty for that sin, and his resurrection accomplished new life for you. Believe in Jesus. If you're a Christian, we also need to be reminded of this too. Look at verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. H.G. Leopold says, The deep love that God's saints had for him and his word does not exclude humble reverence. Yes, we love God. Yes, we love the Bible. But he is our king. And we need to have humble respect and adoration. We often treat God like a genie in a bottle and only call on him when troubles and circumstances come up. But should, we should value him as the creator, sustainer, and king of the universe. Verse 121 through 124, keep this theme of judgment and moves from commitment to justice. 
Verse 121 says, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me. And based on this commitment to justice in his own life, he asks God to have that same commitment to justice. Verse 122 through 124 are all simply just requests for God's justice in the world based on his own commitment to justice. He says, let not the insolent oppress me. The fulfillment of your righteous promise he once manifested and deal with your servant according to your steadfast love, God's covenant love for his people. And the covenant reminds us of blessing and love for those that are in the covenant and judgment and cursing for those outside. Verse 125 through 128 close this section with God's, or rather loving God's justice. He says in verse 125, give me understanding. And this, I think, might be a consideration of how the wicked are prospering over him. Give me understanding why my life sucks and everybody else's life seems better. Why does God allow the wicked to prosper? Why does God allow the wicked to torment him? Why are there wicked people on this world that receive light sentences for unjust crimes? Why does this happen? Our ultimate hope is not in man-made justice, but God's justice. There is no neutral ground when it comes to God's justice, and either you are of the seed of the serpent or put your faith in the seed of the woman. God crushed Satan and will ultimately slay the dragon at the end of time. And with that dragon slain, all the wicked will also be destroyed. There is no neutral ground, and I hope you end up on the right side of that battle. This section closes with verses 127 through 128. I love your commandments. I consider your precepts to be right. We as Christians typically ignore God's justice. But this author says it is the reason that he loves God. The reason he loves God and God's commandments and considers them to be right is because God is just in and of himself. Do you see the word of God as partially the outworking of God's justice or just his love, which really isn't love at all? Do you tend to ignore the justice of God? When you evangelize to people, you kind of leave that part out? They have a savior but don't need saving when we do that. All of scripture reveals all of God's character and anything less is an idol of our own imagination. Now, I typically finish sermons around this time, but I want to take the time to show that this psalm has a forward-looking lens and there is a surprise main point for the end. Bible-saturated people find hope in the Bible-saturated person. Bible-saturated people find hope in the Bible-saturated person. I believe that Psalm 119 itself sees a forward-looking messianic expectation. Turn with me to Psalm 119, 176. The last verse of this psalm reveals, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And I said in the first sermon, this is the most anticlimactic way to end a psalm. All of this glorious praise about the awesomeness and the beauty of the Bible and how he wants to keep it, then he says, I don't. I don't keep it. But that's not the only forward-looking aspect of this psalm. All the way back in the time of Moses, Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20 reads this. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, 
This is talking about a king. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. So before the kingship was even instituted, Moses is creating a law that every king has to write down by hand the whole first five books of the Bible. And then it is approved by the Levitical priests. The text continues. It shall be with him. He shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to love the Lord God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be prideful and lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So we have a connection between being a Bible-saturated person and the king of Israel. More than this, we see in Psalm 1 and 2 this same type of thing. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 1. And jump to verses 6 through 8 in Psalm 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now jumping out, Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8. As for God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Listen to Steve's sermon on Psalm 2 to show the connections between Psalm 1 and 2, but these two reveal the lens by which we read the rest of the psalm. Psalm 119 points back to Psalm 1 and points forward to say there is going to be a Bible-saturated person from the reign of David, the kingship of David, that will reign forever. So can you think of someone in your Bible that is the true king of Israel, that is truly a Bible-saturated person, who was tormented by those around him, who faced death because of his commitment to God and his word, who never wanders because he seeks the wanderer, who perfectly delights in the scriptures, who is the one that can save us. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Bible-saturated person when he quotes Torah to Satan in the wilderness. Jesus is the promised Messiah when he performs signs and miracles. Jesus is the Bible-saturated person when he shows love and compassion to the outcast. We see Jesus as the promised Messiah when he forgives our sin. Do you believe that this morning? Praise God that Jesus came, that he died in our place, that he was buried and rose on the third day so that you and I might be Bible-saturated people. So instead of asking the question, do you love the Bible as much as this author does? I'll ask, do you love Jesus as much as you should? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Bible-saturated person. We love you and want to love you more. We pray that we might know Christ and make him known in this world. Help us to see and savor your glory and to love you more than our own lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, it's fitting now that we, together as a family, take the Lord's Supper. 
after hearing of the glory of God's word, we can now feast together on the glory of God's word through the Lord's table. So I would invite you to go to the cracker and cup.